the final step is Kaizen. Kaizen is a, is a Japanese word that means constant and never-ending improvement. With any of the, the six steps prior or the entire methodology, it's a journey and you're not going to perfect it right out the gate. It's taking this first step, the next step, and the next step, and then making improvements as you move along. So that's the, the seven steps to the secure methodology. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Artists of Data Science podcast, the only self-development podcast for data scientists. You're going to learn from and be inspired by the people, ideas, and conversations that'll encourage creativity and innovation in yourself so that you can do the same for others. I also host Open Office Hours. You can register to attend by going to bitly.com forward slash a-D-S-O-H. I look forward to seeing you all there. Let's ride this beat out into another awesome episode. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave a five-star review. Our guest today has defined his purpose as raising ambition, increasing connection, disrupting the status quo, and empowering his clients to protect life and data from cyber criminals. He's the founder and CEO of Alpine Security and has worked as a university professor, network and systems engineer, a white hat hacker, and has been an innovator and entrepreneur in the cybersecurity industry since 1993. He holds multiple patents on cybersecurity attack and defense simulation and has worked on projects including penetration testing and security assessments of commercial aircraft medical device penetration testing, and numerous other incident response projects. Today, he's here to talk to us about his book, The Smartest Person in the Room, The Root Cause and New Solution for Cybersecurity, which is surprisingly less about cybersecurity and more about being human. So please help me in welcoming our guest today, the man who organizations call when they want to protect themselves from cyber criminals, Christian Espinosa. Christian, thank you so much for taking time out of schedule to come on the show, man. Appreciate having you here. Yeah, thank you, Harpreet. I appreciate the nice introduction there. It's awesome. That's absolutely my pleasure, man. I really enjoyed the book and I'm super excited to, to get into some of the awesome stuff you talk about. But first, let's get to know you a little bit. Talk to us a little bit about where you grew up and what was it like there? Yeah, I grew up in two main places. I, I was in Riverside, California until about the age of 12. And California's uh, Riverside's like a suburb of LA, basically Southern California. So it's very nice weather-wise. Uh, like every day is like nice weather. I could walk to school back in the days where children could still walk to school and ride my bike and skateboard. It was it was nice there. And then at age twelve, I moved to Arkansas, which was quite of a, a quite a bit of a culture shock. I went from a large city like Riverside to a town of like eight hundred in Arkansas called Knoxville. And the school was tiny and it was quite a bit of a culture shock. And Arkansas has a lot of humidity. There's not a lot of things to do, kind of like California. There's, you know, it's a very different environment. Yeah. And those are the two main areas I, I, I grew up in. My childhood was pretty rough, you know, especially in Arkansas. And I, I wrote a little bit about that in the book. Yeah, man. Um, Inland Empire, I know exactly where that's at. I've, uh, I'm from California originally as well, from Sacramento. So I lived in Southern California for quite a year, almost a decade, quite, quite some years. I mean, almost a decade. Uh, so I used to cut through Riverside on the 15 freeway heading to to Vegas quite often. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
so yeah man yeah that was a I mean, you talk about in your book, man, you had quite a rough and tumble upbringing. You definitely went through a lot of shit and that's made you <laughs> a stronger person. Like you're like running ultra marathons and stuff like that, doing Ironman stuff. Like some of these stories you talk about, man, I'm just like, wow, that is super, super inspiring. Uh, talk to us a little bit about that, about these, uh, the ultra marathons and the Ironman stuff like that. Yeah, I actually have an Ironman coming up on May 23rd in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I just got notification that it's going to run as scheduled. So an Ironman uh, is a triathlon, it's three sports. It's a 2.4 mile swim, 112 mile bike ride, and a 26.2 mile run a marathon. You have 17 hours to complete it. Uh, I've done 22 Ironmans. I started probably in 2005. Really, uh, a friend of mine asked me if I wanted to do a triathlon, to race him in a triathlon, and he's very competitive. And I, I used to be very competitive. And I just agreed. I didn't even know what a triathlon was. I couldn't swim. I didn't have a bike. But I was just like, you know, back then I would just say yes to everything, basically. So I said yes and did it and uh, ended up beating him. And after that, I sort of like got into triathlon and started like gradually increasing my distance up, up into the Ironman distance. And then I, I like running in the woods. So I started doing some ultra running and trail running as well. Uh, and it's just been something I've added to my lifestyle. It kind of gives me a reason to work out when there's something on the calendar, like a, a triathlon or an Ironman. It sort of forces you to work out and gives you a purpose for your working out. Because in the past, I used to just be like one of those weightlifters that would go to the gym and just lift weights to look good. But there was really no point. But now I've got to practice swimming, practice running, practice you know biking. I have specific things to work on and a goal to work towards. And you've also, you also do like some crazy mountain climbing type of stuff as well, right? Yeah, I, I have a goal to climb the seven summits. I've done two of the seven so far, and I had to put that on hold a little bit with my business. It took a lot more work than I thought. So I've done uh, Kilimanjaro, which is really just a hike. That's in Africa. And I've done Mount Elbrus in Russia. That's the highest peak in Europe. And then I've done a lot, some other mountains like in Mexico and then in Washington state, but I haven't done the other seven, the other five summits yet. Still on so my list. When you're growing up as, as a kid, man, did you ever think that you'd be this crazy ultra marathon running Ironman mountain climbing cyber criminal fighting awesome individual? I wasn't quite sure what I, what I would be when I grew up. I, I always like adventure. I like to be outdoors. So I knew that something in my future would involve uh, outdoor activity and spending time in nature. And that's, you know, that's another reason I like triathlon and, and uh, ultra running is that you're out in nature and I get a lot of energy from, from nature. I feel grounded and peaceful and tranquil when I'm outside and listening to the wind and everything else. Yeah, man, it takes, it takes a bit of like, discipline and just self rigor to be able to want to put yourself through these really challenging types of, of situation. Where's that, where does that come from for you? I think it comes from my, uh, my, my childhood. I, you know, my child was difficult, difficult growing up. So I got a lot of solace and, you know, peace by going out in nature. So that's kind of why I got attracted to nature, I think, to get away from my childhood environment at my house. And then for the challenge part, I like putting myself, you know, it's not always about the destination, it's about the journey. So with Ironman, because a lot of people ask me, like, why have you done, you know, 22 Ironmans? Why don't, you know, haven't you done enough? Why don't you stop? And to me, it's, it's about the journey as much as it's about the destination. So like getting ready for an Ironman is great. Going to a new venue, like I, I haven't raced in Tulsa before, Oklahoma. Uh, going there, the logistics, uh, meeting the people in the race doing the race and, and experiencing the, the, the weather and the conditions. And then in, during the race, it's so long, it usually takes me like 14 hours, 13 or 14 hours to finish. 
that you have like, it's like your entire life, the ups and downs of life compressed into a, you know, a 14 hour period, basically. So at some point you want to quit. At some point you're, you know, you're feeling great. At some point you're feeling miserable. At some point you're feeling on top, feeling on top of the world. And you're on this journey with these other people as well. So it's really um, an inner battle with yourself and in your mind. And you, have to, you obviously have to be fit physically to do an Ironman, but a lot of it's mental. Same thing with mountaineering. It focuses you to be present. So to me, it, it's, it's that journey and, and it helps me become more resilient and resourceful uh, along the way. And I learn more about myself. That's really why I do these things over and over. Yeah, man. And like, you guys check out his his book, Smartest Person in the Room. It's also available on Audible. You talk a lot about some of these challenges you've been through with with these physical endurance type of exercises. And then you talk a lot about the battle with the mind as well, which I really, really enjoyed. So, I mean, from from everything from, you know, traditional type of kind of self-development type of, of, of content to like, you know, ancient philosophical type of stuff. It's, it's really, really cool, man. You talk about mm-hmm. stoicism and stuff in your book as well. I really really enjoyed those parts but yeah we're gonna we're gonna dig into the book but let's start with the with the actual title of, of the book right like what does it mean to be the smartest person in the room right because that's not always a good thing right what what does that mean to you and when is it a bad thing the smartest person in the room means if, if you believe you're the smartest person in the room typically that means you're closed to new ideas you don't you have a lot of curiosity because you believe you have all the answers and my industry and in other industries, it, it typically shows up as uh, intellectual bullying. You know, you'll talk over somebody's head or you'll make somebody else, you know, feel diminished because that's how you get your significance as being, quote, smarter than everybody. It also shows up as posturing. A lot of people that feel like they're the smartest person in the room will posture, meaning they won't admit when they don't know something. Yeah, when people posture, they're afraid to admit they don't know something because if you admit you don't know something, then you basically have this fear that you may not be perceived as the smartest person in the room or your uh, intelligence is, is uh, maybe diminished. So that if you're afraid to admit you don't know something, that really hinders communication. It's hard to, ha- it's hard to have an open communication with someone, an open discussion, when they're constantly pretending that they know what you're talking about or they know what the problem is then they're not going to be open to saying, you know what, I really don't even know what you're talking about here. Let's, let's unpack that a little bit. So it really, uh, in highly technical career fields, uh, it, is, it is a massive problem, a major problem. It's definitely a problem for sure in, in my field of data science, which I mean, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, data science is very closely related to cybersecurity. We're all kind of in the technology space there. But yeah, we definitely suffer some of these same types of individuals who, who are trying to be the smartest people in the room. But, but what, why is it that that most technical people have this, this need to feel like the smartest person in the room. I, I talk about this in the book a little bit. There's these six human needs. Significance is one of them. Uh, and significance and certainty are the two of the six human needs that most people gravitate towards, especially highly technical people. So if you're significance, because all of us want to feel significant, we want to feel, you know, we're significant at something. For Technical career fields, typically people feel significant because of their intellectual capacity or their, you know, their smarts, basically. So that significance drives their behavior because if, if you've identified and created your identity based on being smarter than other people, based on this is what makes me great, then you're going to look for ways to prove that because your ego 
is going to look for ways to validate what you've identified as your identity, which is being smarter than other people, which is driven from your significance. So that's that's the the, the main reason. Uh, because like I said, we all want to be significant. We all want to be known for something. And typically in technical career fields, it's it's, it's being you know smart. And we'll talk about this a little bit later about the mindset and stuff too. But typically it's like those people who feel the need to be the smartest person in the room, they're also like that fixed mindset type of individual as well, right? They kind of define themselves by being smart and, and, and don't really get some kind of rambling there, but is that a correlation? I guess my question is, is there a correlation or a relationship between the need to be like the smartest person in the room and having like a fixed mindset? Yeah, that's an interesting topic. There is a correlation there. From my experience, a lot of people, you know, want to be the smartest person in the room but they sort of like compartmentalize on what they want to be smart about, like only technical stuff. And the way I look at it is if you're super smart, then your whole life, all aspects of it should be reflection of your, you know, total intelligence. It it shouldn't just be compartmentalized. I'm really good with computers. I'm really good with numbers. It should be that I am great with people. I'm great with, you know, other things as well, my diet, whatever else. It should pertain to that as well. So from a fixed mindset perspective, I would agree that a lot of people that say they're the smartest person in the room, they're 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 limiting their belief to just being smart about one particular topic. And that's where the fixed mindset comes into play because if you have the growth mindset, you 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 might say, "You know what? I I'm not too good with people, but I can certainly get better with people." Whereas with a fixed mindset, a lot of people would say, you know, I'm not, I'm just not good with people, period. And they, they believe they can't get good with people. But to me, that's not, you know, that's not, that's not a measure of intelligence. Because if you are, if you have intelligence, you would believe in a growth mindset that you can get better with people, for instance. Awesome, man. Thank you so much. Yeah, I appreciate that. That really helped me kind of understand it a bit more deeply. So you have kind of a, uh, I want to say antagonist. Can we call this, this character the antagonist of the book? And you call them the paper tiger. So what, who are these paper tigers and why are they so dangerous? Yeah, paper tigers are, are all growl and no teeth, right? So in my industry in cybersecurity and probably in other industries, specifically in cybersecurity, a paper tiger is someone that, that goes and passes a cybersecurity certification, but they don't actually know the material that they're being tested on. Because a lot of the exams in my industry and the certifications, you can go to the internet find you know, a brain dump or a cheat sheet and basically memorize the answers and then go take the test. So what, what's happened is we have a lot of job openings where they're trying to hire people that are certified and then people that want to get a job in cybersecurity know that. So they go out and take all these tests. The employers don't actually test them on something practical. And then you end up hiring these people that are paper tigers. And then when there's a real incident or a real criminal trying to break into your network, the paper tigers don't know what to do because you know, they actually don't know anything other than what they memorized to take the test. So these would be like the, the type of individuals who maybe they're getting into cybersecurity, not because they they genuinely enjoy it or they're interested in it. They're just like, oh, this is a high paying field. I can probably get job security here. Let me just, let me get into it for these reasons, right? But they're not getting into it because of of the actual interest and understanding of it. And so because they get into the field through this, means of taking exams and memorizing the answers and stuff. Anytime they're in a situation where they're being questioned about their intelligence, they tend to just throw up guards and get super defensive. Is that kind of how that, how that works out? Yeah, that's right. 
the paper tigers can talk a good talk, but they can't walk the walk basically. So yeah, when, you know, in a meeting or with an, a, a policy or whatever, from a cybersecurity perspective, they can talk about it. But when there's a real issue and they have to have hands on keyboard or actually think outside of like some terms they've heard and actually put together a plan, that's where they struggle. And this is one of the reasons the cyber criminals are winning because, you know, the cyber criminals don't have paper tigers. They actually know what they're doing because this is what they do for a living. But we've created this problem in our industry uh, because people want to, you know, make money. So if I can go, rather than get a college degree, if I can spend, uh, you know, $50 on a brain dumps and go take a certification exam and get a job the next day making 100, 100K, then of course people are going to do that. People will naturally gravitate towards the shortcuts. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I feel like we, we've got some individuals like that in data science, but they, they kind of just feel that they could take the certifications and that should entitle them to a job. So a little bit of that paper tigerness for, for yeah. us as well. So that brings me to the point, like I, I think you talk about it very, very beautifully in, in, in the book. And I think it's applicable not only to cybersecurity industry, but with the data science industry as well. And it's about the, the current process for hiring people. So talk to us about what you think is wrong with the way we're currently hiring technical talent. And how do you go about it differently? I think we're doing a couple of things wrong for, for, for technical talent. We're relying too much on, on degrees, college degrees, and we're relying too much on certifications. And this has created, you know, this quote, talent shortage. If we require everybody to have a four-year degree for an entry-level position and certifications, of course, there's going to be a talent shortage. What I have done uh, with my hiring, and, and I've made a lot of mistakes, I've taken, a, you know, the journey. I used to hire people based on their technical aptitude first. I didn't care if they had a college degree or if they had certifications. It would be their technical aptitude to see how, how technically great they were. and and I write about this in the book, almost everybody I hired based on that alone was a horrible fit for my organization. So since you know I've learned these lessons the hard way, I've flipped the script. And when I'm interviewing somebody, I look at their technical ability last. I look at their people skills first. I look to see if they're a good fit for our core values. And I also look to see if they're a good cultural fit. If they meet those things, then and only then will I look at their technical skills. Because ultimately, it doesn't matter how good somebody is technically, if, if they don't have, the, the, there's not a good cultural fit, or they don't have the skills uh, to deal with our clients or the team internally, then they're not going to be a good fit for the organization. And when I, when I looked at all the problems I've had in my organization with Alpine Security and in other organizations, the problems haven't been a technical challenge that we couldn't solve. The problems have almost always been the result of a technical person mishandling communication with a prospect or a client or upsetting them in some capacity, which is much more harder to fix than someone, uh, you know, missing something minor technically. So during the interview process, how can you tell that somebody knows what their, their why is, or how do you assess for fit against like a cultural, cultural fit? There's, there's a couple things we do. So to, we have seven core values in Alpine security. So one of the things we do is we ask people we interview to give us a scenario of where they've used one of those core values. Like one of the core values is ownership, basically. So we'll ask them to say, you know, give us a scenario where you had to take ownership over something that initially you thought wasn't your, your area of responsibility, for instance. And then 
to weed out the paper tigers and to find out if somebody is passionate about cybersecurity or passionate about our industry, I will typically ask them questions like, what got you into cybersecurity? Or how do you see yourself making a difference in cybersecurity? Or what would make the job fulfilling for you? So you can ask some kind of pointed questions instead of just asking why you're in cybersecurity. You can ask some what and how questions, and the answers will be pretty revealing. You know, somebody just says, well, you know, I heard there's a lot of money in cybersecurity and I just wanted options. It's probably not the, the right person you want in your company. But if someone actually thought it through, then, you know, you can tell from the answers. I feel like these are questions we should all be asking ourselves as we embark upon any career trajectory. Are those questions that you just laid out? Because they're very introspective, but you should know why it is that you're pursuing this particular path. Because otherwise, yeah. you're, you know, doing it for the wrong reasons. Yeah, exactly. So I'd love to talk about your secure methodology. I guess um, if you could talk about it at a high level, and then I want to want to dig deep on a couple of my, my favorite parts of the uh, secure methodology. Okay. Yeah, the secure methodology is a seven-step methodology I came up with through my experience with highly technical or high IQ, low EQ people and my own company, starting my company and then ultimately selling the company. So it's, it's seven steps. I call it the secure methodology because I'm a believer that if your inner world is not secure, then your environment, your external world is not going to be secure. So it helps you secure yourself as well as the outside world. And it has seven steps. The first step is awareness. Uh, with awareness, you need to have awareness of yourself and awareness of others, for instance. And I talk a little bit about neuro-linguistic programming in the book and neural pathways. And uh, we have these, you know, these patterns we run when we're triggered. And it's like a program that runs in our brain. And from an awareness perspective, it's good to understand like, you know, when somebody says something this way, or I hear a siren, or I I hear this word or whatever, I'm going to automatically start this program. And before you know it, you ran the program. You don't even realize what happened. A lot of us think we're, um, you know, we're, we're not very predictable, but we're actually very predictable because we have these, these patterns, these programs that run in our brain. So I talk about that a little bit and how to uh, break those patterns. And then the second step is mindset. I talk about the fixed mindset versus the growth mindset. I do a little bit of comparison to the matrix. Uh, in the matrix, there's the red pill and the blue pill. Neo chooses the red pill, which is sort of like the growth mindset that allows him to realize, hey, I'm in this matrix and it's going to be challenging, but I can grow. And other people will choose the blue pill. They want to stay in the, their status quo environment and not really grow. They just want to pretend, you know, this other world, this other stuff is not, is not really out there. Uh, then I talk about acknowledgement. In uh, any career field and as a leader, it's important to acknowledge yourself and people that work for you. This is something I've struggled with in my entire career. I've, I've never really like patted myself on the back or give myself credit for anything. I always just like move on to the next thing. And what I realized is if I can't give myself credit or acknowledge myself, I'm going to have a difficult time acknowledging others, which is, is, is a problem for a leader. And then step four is communication. We talk about the NLP presuppositions a little bit. One of them is the meaning of communication is the response you get. Uh, that shifts the ownership of communication on you. A lot of people will just continue to communicate the same way over and over and over and expecting the person all of a sudden to get it. But it's really on you as a communicator to alter your communication to make sure the message is received. And I go over some tactics to do that. And then the fifth step is monotasking. So monotasking is in contrast to multitasking. We've been kind of brainwashed to want to multitask and do like 17 things at once, check our email, 
check our text messages, talk on the phone, you know, do a Zoom call type of a report. And, th- and that is horribly inefficient. So I'm a proponent of monotasking for two main reasons. One of them is productivity. If you monotask and have concentrated focus, you can be much more productive. And the other reason is presence. If you are talking to somebody and you're monotasking, your listening is going to improve because you're actually listening. And that helps with communication. And those seven steps are in an order because like, you know, with presence and monotasking, you need to have awareness first before you can do that, for instance. And then the sixth step is empathy. So I talk a little bit about cognitive versus effective empathy and how as society, uh, we tend to focus on our differences where we should be looking at our similarities. It's hard to be empathetic with somebody when we're not looking at them as a fellow human being. We're looking at them as like, well, you know, Joe is a salesperson and I am a technical engineer or data scientist, right? So we're all humans at, this, at, at the fundamental level and, and we share a lot more in common than we realize. And then the final step is Kaizen. Kaizen is a, is a Japanese word that means constant and never-ending improvement. With any of the, the six steps prior or the entire methodology, uh, it's a journey and you're not going to perfect it right out the gate. It's taking this first step and the next step and the next step and then making improvements as you move along. So that's uh, the seven steps to the secure methodology. And ultimately, you know, I know my book is focused on a little bit about cybersecurity, but cybersecurity is the, the context of my experience and my stories in the book, but the seven steps really apply to anybody because they, they ultimately help you become a better human being. Yeah, I found it highly, like highly relatable to, to myself as a data scientist. Mm-hmm. That absolutely, like the, the parallels are, are all there. So anybody who's a data scientist is going to benefit tremendously from, from this as well. And um, yeah, so that, that was the answer to my question there. I was wondering if the methodology, is it like, do we work through it in order? Or is it kind of like something that happens like, different pieces fit together, but whatever, but you have to go through them, them in order. So we don't have to go through them in order. I recommend you go through them in order, but you can certainly take one section like communication and work on improving that without going through the rest of them. Okay. Um, okay. But, but for instance, if, if you haven't gone through awareness and mindset, you're probably, you may have some tr- struggles, you know, improving your communication, for instance. Yeah. And you know, you talked about it just briefly, but I, I want to talk a little bit more about the, the two types of awareness. I know you touched on, on, on awareness, but can, can we help us uh, break that down a little bit further? These two different types of awareness that we have, what are they? Yeah, in the book, I talk about uh, self-awareness and awareness of others, like two broad categories. A lot of us like to think we're very aware of the world around us without taking the time to like turn the mirror on us and be aware of our own interactions and how we impact the world. So it's important to look at awareness, you know, mainly from how you interact with the world. I think self-awareness is more important than awareness of others because a lot of us, uh, we always assume it's somebody else is a problem or there's, you know, some other thing that's going on. And, and I talk about NLP in the book, and I think I talk about cause and effect. From an awareness perspective, you generally want, there's an equation in NLP that C is greater than E. Cause, you should be living at cause, which means that you cause the effect of everything in your life. A lot of people, if they lack self-awareness, their E is greater than C, and they believe everything else around them is causing the effect on their life. So it's, it's, it's flipping that around, but you have to have the self-awareness to do that. And you talk about this really cool exercise that you use to help broaden our awareness. Can you talk about that? 
Yeah, I've got a few exercises in the book. There's the the perspective taking one where you look at the context of a scenario. Uh, I think the one you're referring to might be, uh, you know, if you're going to order a coffee and the the person is really slow and they have in, you know, you might complain to the manager, but without understanding that there's something going on behind the scenes, like that the person's grandmother may have just died or something. So there's a reason they're acting the way they are. You may not complain to the manager, even though the scenario is exactly the same. Another example I, I like to look at from my own life, and I do this like daily, is, is what I call condor vision. I talk about that a little bit in the book. It's basically, it's a shamanism uh, thing that I studied shamanism a little, a little bit, where it's a way to like disassociate from your life. So from an awareness perspective, we're always, most of us are most of the time, like looking at our life, you know, right up front, up close and personal. And sometimes you can't see uh, the forest for the trees, literally. So when you practice something like condor vision, you like zoom out of your life and you pretend you're looking at your life from like a condor flying above it. And you can see like the whole forest, you can see where you are, you can see the big picture. And sometimes like it helps you not get so wrapped up and the thing you're working on right at the minute, because you can see like there's a bigger thing at play. And that disassociation and that exercise is very useful for me. Yeah, that was the one I was talking about, the condor vision. I really, really like that that exercise. I do something similar, uh, but in, in like kind of a different different context. It's like the, it's called like the circles of, of hierocles, where you think, you know, you think about, okay, here's me, my mind. Then outside of that is like my my family, immediate family. So you think about Think about things from their perspective, and you keep going outward from your neighborhood to your city to your your province to your continent, and and eventually just thinking about like the your place in the entire world it makes you just feel it puts things in perspective. Let's say that, yeah, yeah, that's awesome. I like that. So talking about mindset, why is it that a lot of people confuse mindset and attitude? I think the terms are used interchangeably quite a bit. The way I look at it is mindset is what you believe about the world and how you see it. And attitude is typically how you react to the world. So you can have a growth mindset, for instance, but as you're going through the journey uh, to mastery, uh, you could be like pissed off the whole time, right? That's your attitude. So you want to have like a positive attitude and a growth mindset, both. Because, you know, if you're growing, but your your attitude is that you you don't like it along the way that it, you think it sucks then it's not going to be a pleasant journey and ultimately you know it, life boils down to how you feel in the moment and how you feel you know throughout your day so why not try to f- generate feelings that are more positive and more happy than painful feelings right yeah absolutely man i mean i'm all about that growth mindset but yeah i mean there's sometimes i don't know if i'm like fooling myself because it's something I know I should have. Like, I, like, you know, like intellectually, I'm like, oh yeah, I should have a growth mindset. I should, <laughs> I should know that I'm able to, you know, my mind is plastic or there's neuroplasticity and I should be able to, to know all these things. But I don't know, man, I don't know if, if, if I truly have one or if I truly have like a, a growth mindset or like a false growth mindset. I don't know. Don't know if that makes sense, but what do you think? Is like the false growth mindset a thing? Do you think it's possible to identify whether we have a real growth mindset or, or a false one? Yeah, I think it's a total thing. I think if you ask a hundred people if they have a fixed mindset or a growth mindset, most people are going to self-identify as having a growth mindset. I think the real test is for what you're saying. You know, if you have a false growth mindset, the 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 test for me is a congruence test. So if I tell myself I have a growth mindset about a specific thing, like let's say I want to improve my relationship, and I, and I have a growth mindset about my relationship, but then none of my actions align 
with my belief of improving my relationship, then from my perspective, I don't pass the test. I don't really have a growth mindset because I have like the false growth mindset. You said, I, I think I say one thing, but I do another. So it needs to be congruent with your belief and your actions need to align. And, and that's something like, you know, relationships or communication is something you can always improve on. And I found myself for a while in that sort of false growth mindset. I was like, yeah, I, I want to get better at relationships. I want to get better at my communication. I want to get better at understanding, you know, how women talk and, and how, what they need versus men. And then I wasn't doing anything about it. So finally, I said, you know what? I'm going to take this ultimate relationship program. I'm going to talk to some people about this. I'm going to watch some YouTube videos. And then my actions aligned with my belief. So I actually embraced the growth mindset, only, but only when I did that. Okay, so it's kind of like that, that. The, the difference would be, okay, it's one thing to, for me to say, yeah, I want to improve in this aspect of my life for whatever reason. But then if I'm actually doing the steps, like you said, like, okay, I'm reading, might be reading some articles, might be doing the mental work or whatever, then that's a good indication that I'm on the actual growth mindset path, not just in a false growth mindset. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's, that's, yeah, that's the congruence, right? Yeah. You're being congruent with your belief. Yeah. yeah you, are, you are being what you believe. Exactly. Yeah, because I'll be like, because like, like it's saying intellectually, like I know that, okay, yeah, I know it's, it's things hard. I don't understand this particular thing yet, but I know I can get it. But even while I'm on that path of like improving, there's still like that little nagging voice in the head. Like, do you really know? Like, are you really getting this? Like, do you really understand what's happening? So that's that kind of conflict that, that I have sometimes that makes me wonder if it's actually a growth mindset that I actually have. If, or if there's just like a lingering, you know, fixed mindset guy from all those decades of growing up that's this. <laughs> rearing his ugly head but i guess if we're on the path if we're if we're actively taking strides and we're doing what we can to quiet that voice out then have no fear we have a growth mindset yeah yeah you're, you're trying to grow in that area yeah. right yeah you're not just thinking about it you're actually working on it yeah exactly yeah. appreciate that thank you so we talk about nlp presuppositions different type of nlp than what us data scientists and machine learning people are used to we think natural language processing but <laughs> of course yeah this is neuro-linguistic programming which is funny if we see like neuro-linguistic programming on a data science job posting and a lot of us will be like what, what is this Doesn't oh <laughs> yeah but yeah so what are these nlp presuppositions and i guess what do they mean in the context of your secure methodology so the nlp nlp presuppositions presuppositions are just a set of beliefs that I think are very useful when looking at your own life and interacting with others. Uh, and that's really all they are is a guiding set of beliefs that are, are based on a lot of research and, and study of human behavior. And so you talk about 14 of them in your book. I was just curious if, if these are like custom presuppositions that fit your methodology or are these like the, the 14 NLP presuppositions? Good question. These are the 14. In NLP, some some NLP institutions have have like sixteen presuppositions. I'm a certified NLP practitioner, and when I went through my training, which is one of the accredited training, uh, the fourteen I discussed in the book are the fourteen we, we covered in the course and in my training. So when we talk about it with respect to like the communication part of the secure framework, what what are like your top two favorite presuppositions for that communication part? Yeah. In the book, I, I, I tie the NLP presuppositions to each step in the secure methodology. For communication, the primary one is 
that the meaning of communication is the response you get. And, and I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but a lot, you know, and I go over an example in the book, you know, as in Italy, and there was a, this, for some reason, it's always sticks out in my mind. There's an American try to order an Italian from an Italian and an ice cream with these certain flavors. And the American just kept raising his voice, saying the same thing, just louder and louder and louder. And the Italian was not understanding. So that is the example of you're not getting the response you, you want. So you need to change how you communicate. So that's one of them. Another one is, I would say the map is not the territory. A lot of people, when they're describing something that you may see as well, they're going to have their own map in their head and describe it differently than you would describe it. So to have the awareness of that, when you're talking to somebody about a problem, uh, about a solution, or about you know a conversation, they're going to describe it based on their own map of the world and their model of the world. And yours may be completely different. So you need to like take it with a grain of salt and understand like they're filtering the information they're giving to you. It's not the actual information. And this has been shown uh, many times, like if seven people witness a car accident and you ask all seven people what happened, even though the accident is a, you know, something that happened factually, that's like the territory. Everyone's map of what happened is going to be different. All this talk about travel and maps. First of all, it's making me miss, miss all the travel and stuff since we're over here on lockdown. But Uh, at the beginning of this entire COVID crazy COVID thing that we're living through right now, you actually, like you were in Ireland and you decided not to travel and ended up staying in Ireland for an extended amount of time, right? Like was like two or three months or some extended length of time, right? Yeah. That must've been a situation where, I mean, you you probably had to use your secure methodology in that, in that framework, right? Like having to be stranded in another country not sure what's going on with the world. Which part of your secure framework do you think really helped you through that that part of your life? Probably all of it. Uh, yeah, I, I went to Ireland. Like the, I flew to Ireland the day before uh, the U.S. closed their borders because of COVID. Is like March of uh, 2020, right when COVID started happening, and I had the choice. Like immediately after I landed, you know, I either needed to leave the next day or figure out what to do and stay there with, without knowing when the borders would open back up or anything. So I decided to stay there. And I, I guess from what step, there's a couple steps, you know, right. Is a the mindset is one of them. You know, I have a growth mindset and Kaizen is probably another step. I just figured this is a step I'll take and I'll, I'll figure it out as I go. Right. Cause I, I, there's no perfect solution for anything. We always, a lot of us like to seek, uh, you know, when making a decision, we want to make the perfect decision. But a lot of times it's just making the decision and 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 then figuring things out. And that's where Kaizen comes into play. And for me, I, I try to have three categories for decisions. I try to have a hell no, a maybe, and a hell yes decision. And I try to keep things out of the maybe, maybe category because I feel like if something's in the maybe category, uh, it's just taking up mental space and fogging up your brain. So you need to like move it to like no or yes, basically. So like with me, I was in the maybe category for a little bit, but I just decided what on that going back home or staying in Ireland, I decided to, you know, hell yes, I'm going to stay in Ireland. I moved moved to that category. And that was a decision like, okay, I'll, I'll figure this out because I have made the decision to figure it out. Yeah, man. I thought that was so crazy. Like you're, you had a very, very interesting life, man. I enjoyed reading a lot about all the, you got so many cool stories in the book, man. Um, you guys check it out. Like I mentioned, it's on Audible as well, if that's your thing. But let's, let's talk about monotasking now. I, well, mostly because this is the thing that I struggle with the most 
so it was my favorite part of the book mm-hmm. uh, just because what you know it's been been a struggle for me recently so so talk to us what what is monotasking yeah so monotasking is doing one thing at a time not just doing one thing like permanently but doing one thing for a block of time for me with monotasking i typically break up my day where i i will only check email during a certain hour then i'll do something else for a different hour then I'll, I'll work on another project for an hour. Then I'll do a podcast for an hour, whatever. But that's that's all, all I do during that time frame. And, and what a lot of us do is multitasking, which is 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 not efficient uh, because when you multitask, you have to do a lot of context switching. So if you're trying to write write a report and check your email at the same time, your brain has to switch back and forth the whole time. So you get an email, you respond to it, then you go back to the report. Some of the stuff from your email ends up in the report. You know, it's like your brain is not inefficient every time it switches subjects. So it's better to monotask and, and take like for an hour block or 50 minute block, whatever works for you, and just work on one thing at a time. A lot of people think they'll be less productive by monotasking, but once they actually do it, they realize their produ- productivity goes like up tremendously. And it also helps with presence. You know, we talk about communication, but if I am multitasking, like if I'm on my phone, if I'm texting somebody, while we're at dinner, that I'm not listening to you and it's not going to help my relationship. So monotasking, like being present with somebody is extremely important as well. Yeah. That means I struggle with that at times, man. Like I'll be working on something and then I'll just get this nagging itch to go, let me go check my email. Let me go check LinkedIn. And it's really, really tough to, to fight that off. Um, so I'm, I'm interested in getting into some of the NLP presuppositions, but before I do that, I, I know you're talking about how you, you time block, block and, and chunk your day out. Mm-hmm. You're talking about how you use the uh, Brendan Bouchard's high performance calendar, yeah. which I tried to use. I used it for a while, but it, it just felt too kind of like a, just too restrictive for me. Like mm-hmm. so I used it maybe for like three-ish months. And then I was just like, oh, you know what? This this thing isn't the right fit for me. And I, I've switched to something that's more relaxed where it's not necessarily time boxing the the day. It's just, here's the four or five things that I want to accomplish today. Yeah. Um, and I found that's been a little bit more helpful for me. But I, I admire you for being able to do that high performance calendar, man. That thing is demanding. <laughs> well, I'm not perfect. There's some days that I'll do it. But yeah, yeah, I try to do it every day. What I've noticed, though, if I fall off of doing the calendar and doing the, the time blocks, one of the good things about you know, the high performance planner is every week you evaluate where you are in certain categories. Mm-hmm. If I have fallen off on my morning routine and the time blocks, I notice my scores drop in my categories so it's a good indicator that something is awry there yeah yeah i've started using this uh this thing called the six minute journal that's been helpful as well and it does like a monthly check which is similar to to that high performance uh Hmm. planet thing but yeah yeah six minute journal interesting yeah yeah it's quite nice i have the five minute journal (laughs) yeah in canada like i don't know what what it was they it was impossible to to find that on amazon in canada so i got the one minute extra, I guess, six minutes, which is quite <laughs> nice. I like it. But yeah, okay. So, so for the people out there like me who struggle with this monotasking, because we know it's good for us, we know it's going to help us move whatever we're doing forward. What are some of the NLP presuppositions that we can use to remind ourselves that it is time to get down to, to monotasking? Uh, there's a couple. One of them would be that people are not their behaviors. We all, I think a lot of us, think our identity is tied to our behavior. Our behavior is something we, we do. So we, we have the ability to change our behavior. And then the other one is, uh, I would say that people 
have all the resources they need to succeed uh, and achieve their desired outcomes. We all, I, I, I'm a believer that we all know what to do. Uh, we just have some sort of trauma or limiting belief, or we've been, you know, conditioned by our education system or by parents or whatever to, to, to do things a certain way. But our uniqueness and our authenticity uh, is there beneath several layers. So, you know, monotasking may not be the best thing for, for you or for other people, but you know what works for you. It's just a matter of, of revealing that in a way that is serving for you. Do you have any tips that can help us kind of figure out how we can reveal that to ourselves to, to figure out, you know, what's going to work best for us? I think the, the, on a specific topic, the seven levels deep exercise, I talk about that a little bit is a good tip because, you know, often we, we think we should do something, but we don't really understand the underlying reason and going through like the seven levels deep exercise will help you reveal the underlying reason. Cause sometimes the reason we, we give up on a task or a new behavior or a workout or monotasking or whatever is because we don't really understand why we want to do it. We're not tied to the why or emotionally, we don't have a, a big enough emotional reason to do something because it really boils down to emotion. If we just want to do something in our head, but we don't have the emotional wherewithal or understanding why we want to do it, then we're going to you know find reasons not to do it basically. So let's talk about Kaizen. So this, continuous improvement, continuously getting better. I'm definitely a huge fan of, of that. But before we get into that, like I, like I love these, these presuppositions that, that you use and, and how you tie them to, to different aspects of the secure model. What are a couple of the presuppositions that we should have in mind for the Kaizen? One of the main ones is there is no failure. There's only feedback. So with Kaizen, you know, we're, we're not failing at something, we're learning what didn't work so we can improve it. That's the main one. And the other one is probably the same concept that, you know, people are not their behaviors. If we've been doing something forever, that does not mean that's our identity. Uh, we have the ability to, to shift that. And it may take a journey and continuous practice and continuous improvement. And I go over an example in the book, I think with Tiger Woods, for instance, uh, you know, one of his behaviors was the way he did his, his chipping movement with golf. I'm not a golfer, so I don't really know these terms too well, but he had, he, he used to do it a certain way, but it was, it was only got him so far. So he had to unlearn how he did it and relearn how to do it in a different manner to improve. And, and that was because he realized that, you know, this behavior I do of how I do this is not really me. That's just something I've learned and I can learn a different way of doing it. I just need to take the first step. Yeah, absolutely. Love that. And you talk about the four four phases of, of Kaizen. Can you walk us through that? Yeah, the, the, the continuous improvement cycle, there's a four main phases for that. There's a identify something you want to improve. And typically you want to figure out what the root issue is you want to improve, devise a plan for that, execute the plan, and then review to see if it works. So it's like a, a circle, right? You want to figure out if I want to lose weight, for instance, and that's what I identified, I may change my diet. So the plan might be, I'm only going to eat fruit before noon, for instance. And then you decide to execute it. So I'm going to execute this for 30 days, this plan. After 30 days, uh, I'll see if I actually lost weight or my you know, BMI changed or whatever. And if it didn't change, then you may need to come up with a new plan. So you need to have that constant feedback there. A lot of people uh, won't look at the feedback. They'll start something and uh, it doesn't work. And then they won't tweak it and do the next thing. They'll just say, well, that didn't work and give up basically. But that's, that's like being a dabbler versus a master. And I, I cover, cover that in the book as well. 
Yeah, let's get into that, man. Let's talk about this this dabbler versus versus master. Because I, I mean, I feel like everyone kind of has that inner drive to want to be masterful and exhibit mastery in whatever it is that they do. So, so yeah, talk talk to us about dabblers and masters, and how can we maybe become masters? Yeah, so a, a dabbler is someone that, like with a diet, I was talking about. As soon as it doesn't work, they'll give up and they'll just go back to their normal routine. And that is not practicing kaizen. Kaizen is where if this didn't work, you'll try something else. And if that didn't work, you'll try something else. But you, you keep figuring it out, basically. Because the journey to mastery is going to have some peaks and valleys. And what typically happens is people may see some initial improvement, like with a diet, you know, they may lose a few pounds, you know, and then all of a sudden, so they improve, but then they start gaining weight. So they, 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 they uh, get worse. And then they'll just give up versus say, oh, well, this worked a little bit. I just need to tweak this part here. And then, you know, eventually you'll start mastering things, you know, but it takes you getting through those valleys. And a lot of people give up as soon as something gets hard. And those are the dabblers. Yeah, it's kind of like, um, I think Seth Godin talks about something in his book, The Dip, but that's like that valley. And that book's about knowing when to quit. It's about knowing when to stick through it and when to actually push through it with that. With that yeah, yeah. Right? Very, very similar concept. Yes. Yeah. So. I mean, it sounds like some of these steps that we've talked about in the secure methodology and through the NLP suppositions, like they're kind of meant to reprogram our wetware, so to speak, reprogram our brains. So talk to us about how this methodology actually does that, that it's actually, it actually rewires our wetware. It does that by those neural pathways, right? So a lot of our behaviors are those programs that just run automatically. It's a strong neural pathway in our, in our brain. And our brain has neuroplasticity, which means we can learn new neural pathways. And we talked a little bit about dabblers versus masters. One of the, the challenges is if we've always done something a specific way, we have a, our brain has a very strong neural pathway. And we're going to just execute that. It's like a super highway. So going through the seven-step methodology, the idea is we will form a new neural pathway. It'll be weak at first, but the more we use it, the stronger it will get and the easier it will be to use. And then the old neural pathway, the old habit will get weaker and eventually go away. But this, this is not an overnight thing. It takes a lot of effort. It's like you know, lifting weights or whatever. If, you're, if you want your muscle and your arm to get bigger, it's not going to get bigger overnight. It takes a lot of effort, right? And it's the same thing with your brain. A lot of a lot of us just think our our traits are fixed. We are the way we are, but we can actually, like you said, the wetware, we can rewire our brain if we do it intentionally. And there's a lot of exercises I cover in the book that basically result in you re- reprogramming your brain to achieve different results than you've gotten so far. Yeah, there's a lot of great, lots of great exercises in that book. So guys, definitely check it out. So let's have the last formal question before going into the random round. All right. It is, it is 100 years in the future. What do you want to be remembered for? A few things. One, I want to remember for, as someone that went for it, that did not play small, somebody that stood for my convictions, lived passionately, and I would say left people in a better state than after I encountered them than before. Yeah, man. Absolutely love that. That's very beautifully put. And I'm definitely left in a better state after reading your book. So oh, awesome. I appreciate that. You have, you have helped me, which which is why this episode sounded kind of like a therapy session for me, I feel like. 
but yeah, you know. <laughs> so let's jump into the random round. When do you think the first video to hit 1 trillion views on YouTube will happen? And what will it be about? I think it'll happen in 2025 and it might be Gangnam style. I think that was the first video to hit a billion views. Yeah. Yeah. That was, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Or new or something similar to that. It'll probably be some silly music video. <laughs> yeah. Currently it's like baby shark. It's uh, Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah, like, I think it's like probably 9 billion by now, but yeah. So you're, you're probably right on track there. Some silly stuff. What do most people think within the first few seconds of meeting you for the first time? Most people think I look like Dolph Lundgren from Rocky Four. That's what most people tell me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I see it now. Yes. <laughs> A lot of young people in the audience will have to go and Google that one. That's but, true. Uh, That's it's, true. It's, it's spot on. <laughs> so I know you are... A avid reader. I mean, a lot of the books that you referenced in, in your book, I've, I've read myself. So what are you currently reading? I just finished uh, listening to Finding Ultra by Rich Roll, which is, which is awesome. It's about his personal transformation and how he achieved that by changing his diet uh, to a plant-based diet and doing some ultra distance events, that whole uh, transformation and, and letting the ego go and ultimately surrendering because you don't want to get so far where you're self-reliance. So at some point you have to surrender to something greater. That was one of the messages in the book, which is great. And I started re-listening to Loving What Is uh, by Byron Katie. That's a book I've listened to before. It asks you four questions in there called The Inquiry. And it's very useful from a personal development point of view and dealing with people. Definitely have to check both of those out. Yeah. I've, I've, uh, like I've listened to episodes of Rich Roll's podcast, but I haven't, mm-hmm. I haven't really dug too much into his writing or his work. So I definitely have to check that one out as well. What song do you currently have on repeat? I currently have Let Us Burn by Within, T- T- Within Temptation on repeat. I like to listen to that song when I work out. I listened to it this morning, actually. All right. I'm definitely going to have to check that one out. <laughs> yeah, it's good. So we're going to open up the random question generator and we'll see what we get from right. this thing. So I'm pulling it up right here. <laughs> First question, what's your earliest memory? My earliest memory, which is a bizarre memory, is the first thing that came to mind when, when I saw that question. For some reason, I used to, when I got upset with my mom or my um, stepfather, I used to uh, hold my breath and pass out as a, as a I don't know what, why, but I'd pass out in the yard. And I, and I always have these like visions of the blades of grass coming back into focus when I came to. It was, my mom took me to the hospital and got me checked out about that stuff. It was, it was this bizarre reaction I had to something. So. Huh. When was the last time you changed your opinion about something major? The last time I changed my opinion about something major is uh, some discussions with my partner or girlfriend about surrender versus like pushing through. I'm more of a believer. I used to be that kind of like the rich role thing, which is interesting that the, the book Finding Ultra, they talk about that in there too. I used to be a believer that I can just push through and do everything myself. And it, and her, her belief and rich, Rich Roll's belief as well is that that will only get you so far. At some point, you have to like surrender from the perspective of giving in to something larger than yourself and trust that the outcome will be the outcome that is, you know, the right outcome for you, not be so tied to the outcome. Yeah, I like that. I like that part about not being tied to the, to the outcome. Yeah, that's our um, ego. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've been reading a lot of, um, I don't know if you've heard of him, uh, Kapil Gupta, MD, Dr. Kapil Gupta. Yeah. I've been reading in some of his books lately and it's, it's 
touching along on some of the same stuff you're talking about there, but yeah. Um, what's the best piece of advice you have ever received? The best piece of advice I ever received is to focus on relationships and connections and not try to do everything myself. Like when I was the CEO of my business, an entrepreneur, I thought it was like me against the world. And I thought nobody else knows what it's like to be an entrepreneur. And that was a very lonely journey. So then someone said, you know what? You don't have to, the journey doesn't have to be like that. That's your choice. There's other people you can talk to that are going through the same journey that can be your support system and you can help each other. And that's what I ended up doing is joining some peer groups and, and really, you know, getting some mentorship and, and, and mentoring other people as well. Yeah. So when it comes to like mentorship, like how, this is something that's huge in the data science community. Like I get hit up all the time for people wanting me to be the mentor. And it's like, I, I mean, I can't take on everyone. Like what's the right way going about finding a mentor in, in your experience? I think you, you need to find someone that you're comfortable working with and, and having an honest conversations with, it, you know, from a lot of people have asked me to mentor them, but they want to be mentored on something tactical, like how to improve your sales process and I'm, I'm not a believer in that necessarily. I think there's plenty of books out there about that. I think from a mentor perspective, uh, you need to find someone that can look at you as an individual strategically and look at you as a person and, and help you achieve your goals and reveal what you really want to do. Because a lot of us have this idea of what we want to do, but we, we, it's sort of been you know, programmed into us by somebody else. But I think a mentor needs to be good, like a coach. It asking the right questions and uncovering what you already know inside of you. Uh, I think that is important from a mentor perspective. Do you think like the mentor mentee relationship is like oh, a one way relationship or should it be kind of going both ways? Like if somebody is my mentee, is it just me helping them? Like should, should they, should the mentee give something back to the mentor or offer to give something back to the mentor? You know, it may not be considered a book. I think the mentor should be helping the mentee. But in my experience, when I've mentored people or coached people, there's been things that they've said and things for the, through our discussions that have changed my life and changed my perspective on things as well. So it may be you know, a mentor to a mentee relationship, but the mentor is certainly going to learn a lot, at least from my experience, by mentoring the, the, you know, the mentee. Thank you for that. Yeah. Well, next random question. <laughs> what's, uh, what's something you learned in the last week? Something I learned in the last week was, I would say, more on the surrender and, and, and trusting perspective. Uh, the, the book Finding Ultra talks about Hawaii quite a bit. I've been to Hawaii a lot and the, the kahunas and the gods there and all that. And, and, you know, trusting something bigger. I think that sort of like the way Rich Roll mentioned that sort of like shifted something in me based on, you know, what my girlfriend had said before and the way Rich Roll said it combination of that coming from different angles sort of like shifted what that surrender me means to me because i used to think it was giving up but it's not really giving up it's like trusting in something more yeah man that's deep man i definitely gotta check out some more of that uh <laughs> that ritual book we'll do the last one from the random question all right here. who was your favorite teacher and why uh my favorite teacher was in college this was a i went to the air force academy so it was a military academy and my favorite teacher was an army helicopter pilot, part of the, the air cavalry. He wore like these boots and a, and a cowboy hat, basically. It's like a, their uniform. But what he did is, is I, forgot, I don't even know the class he taught, but what he did is he had us, uh, you know, come and have a conversation with him after, after class hours about life in general. 
And he's the only teacher that really did that. And he said, you know, what are your plans and what are you thinking about? And, and, you know, here's some of the stuff you might want to be on the lookout for, but he actually, from you talk about a mentor mentee, he was one of the only teachers in college that didn't just focus on like, you know, the academic subject, but focused on us as a person and made the effort to give us some life skills and mentor us in that capacity, which I really appreciated. It's awesome, man. We, we, we could all have somebody like that, that in our, in our lives. That's, that's really cool, man. Yeah. Christian, man, thank you so much for taking time. I scheduled to come onto the show today. Let us know how can these people connect with you? Where could they find you online? Yeah, they can connect with me on LinkedIn. That's probably the best place. And then go to my website, uh, christianespinoza.com. And if they wanted to find the book, where could they find that? The best place to find the book is on Amazon. And like you mentioned, the Audible version is on Audible as well, is narrated by Kaleo Griffith. I didn't narrate it and I thought he did a fantastic job. Yeah, definitely did. Yeah, absolutely loved it. Christian, thank you again for, for coming to the show. Appreciate you being here. Yeah, thanks for having me, Harpreet. I really appreciate it. 